message for today. Uh, I want to go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to speak to us as we just asked him in song. Let's pray together. God, people need Jesus. And we intentionally partner with people around the globe so that those who do not worship you will. But today, I am asking you, because we need you too, we need you here just as well, I'm asking you to specifically work here in each of us and each of the folks listening, whether they're sitting here or watching online. Today we are studying and meditating on your words, your words to us regarding Ephesians 6 and the armor that you have for us. And this morning we confess to you that perhaps some of us are not even aware of this armor because we never put it on. We confess to you this morning that some of us are aware of the armor, but we still don't put it on. And we confess to you this morning that perhaps we don't understand and realize that this life that we live in is a war. So, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would help us this morning fall fresh upon us, work powerfully in us. We need you. Oh, God, would you enlighten our minds and our hearts so that we, we may see and feel and understand this great inheritance, this armor that we have in Christ. So wake us up this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we begin a series on the armor of God. For the next few, well, next many weeks, we're going to work through this armor and we're going to talk about this armor in the life of a believer. So I want to encourage you to, uh, this, is, this really is, is uh, an, a very important message for us to understand as a, as a basis of what God has for us concerning the next few weeks uh, in the armor of God. This is one of these messages where I would encourage you, you listen to it today, but maybe listen to it again this week or a few times, because it's that important to us as a basis and a foundation for the teaching that's coming. The title of today's message is The General's Call. The General's Call. And we apologize, we got the new bulb in this week, and uh, we tried to get it up, and matter of fact, you can see we there's a hole open that thing, and we're trying to get it up in there. Even this morning, I had a couple guys come in and work on it. We just can't get it to get in there. There's something that's broken, we think. And so we're going to take that whole unit down this week, and hopefully next week um, we'll be able to follow. I saw some of you turn around and, and sing off the back screen, which is perfectly great and fine. But next week, hopefully, we'll have that uh, ready to go uh, for you. Um, you can't see the slide, but the... We're going to talk about the armor of God this next few weeks, and the title of today's message is The General's Call. 
for as long as wars have been fought. Great military leaders have been able to use the power of their pulpit to motivate troops. The commander-in-chief, Ronald Reagan, said in 1987, there is one sign the Soviets can make that would be unmistakable, that would advance dramatically the cause of freedom and peace. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. During the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, Commander-in-Chief John Kennedy said, the cost of freedom is always high, but Americans have always paid for it. And the one path we shall never choose, and that is the path of surrender or submission. Our goal is not the victory of might, but the vindication of right, not peace at the expense of freedom, but both peace and freedom here in this hemisphere, and we hope around the world, God willing, that goal will be achieved. I'm sure in your mind right now, some of these speeches you remember, and there are other notable speeches like General Patton's exhortation to the Third Army in 1944, or General Eisenhower during the invasion of Normandy. There are times when men, when men must stand and command, when they must call the troops to, the, to action because life hangs in the balance. Because life hangs in the balance. And in our passage today, General Paul calls to each of us, and he, first of all, gives us a command. Number one in this text, he gives us a command. Notice it with me. At the beginning of verse number 10, he says, be strong. A little commentary there. Then he picks up again in verse 13, and he says, take up the whole armor of God. Or we would say in our vernacular, put it on. And then he says, the last part of his command to the Christian army, the Christian soldiers he's speaking to, which is us, he says in verse number 14, once, you have, once you're strong and you put that, be strong, put the armor on, and then church, stand. Don't move. Stand. So he gives us the command to be strong and put on the armor and stand. But why does he give us this command? Why does he pull the troops together as it were? Why does he rally? Why are we rallied here together today? And why does he say this to us? And he says this because number two, there is a war that's going on. Read this with me in verse number 11 and 12. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Why does he give us this command? Because there's a war. Do you know this is a continual warning from Paul? He wrote to a young Christian soldier named Timothy, 
and he warned Timothy. You remember the passage? He said, Timothy, hey, Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. And then later on in his life, at the end of Paul's life, really, he wrote again to Timothy. And he said to Timothy, you know, Timothy, I have fought the good fight. Friends, we live life. It's a war. An older pastor, he's 75 years old today. Not today, but presently he's 75 years old. He's faithfully been serving Jesus for many years, said this. Most people do not believe in their heart that life is a war. Most people show by their priorities and their casual approach to spiritual things that they believe we are in peacetime, not wartime. In wartime, the newspapers carry headlines about how the troops are doing. In wartime, families talk about the sons and the daughters on the front lines and write to them, and they pray for them with heart-wrenching concern for their safety. In wartime, we are on alert. We are armed. We are vigilant. In wartime, we spend money differently. There is austerity, not for its own sake, but because there are more strategic ways to spend money than on new tires. The war effort touches everybody. We all cut back. The luxury liner becomes the troop carrier. Very few people think that we are now in a war that is greater than World War II and greater than any imaginable nuclear World War III. But what have millions of Christians done? They have stopped believing that we are in a war. There's no urgency. There's no watching. There's no vigilance. There's not even strategic planning. Just easy peacetime and prosperity, end quote. Friends, perhaps he's right. But Paul, General Paul, is here, and he's waking us up, and he's saying, listen, church, there is a war for your soul that is going on. And you know the war that we fight? It's not a normal war. Did you pick up on what kind of war it was in verse number 12? The third thing we see here in this text is the nature of the war. The command, the war, and then the nature of the war. It says in verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, one of which is, the previous verse says, is the schemes of the devil. Pastor John Piper comments on this passage. He says, what amazes me about Paul's words here is not what he affirms, but actually what he denies. I'm not surprised to hear him say that we wrestle with an evil angelic demonic, supernatural powers. What surprises me is that he says in verse 12 that we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. I want to look at Paul and say to him, you've been stoned and beaten and imprisoned and run out of town and shipwrecked. Your flesh has been torn and your blood has been spilt and that has hindered your ministry again and again. The flesh of others has torn your flesh and the blood of others has boiled against your blood. What do you mean you don't wrestle against flesh and blood? It's people with their hands and their stones and rods and chains that cost you dearly and tested your faith almost to the limit. 
I think Paul would answer like this. Yeah, you're right. Flesh and blood are real, and it can be very evil. But what I mean is this. Whenever someone's flesh attacks me, or someone's blood boils against me, or my way is hindered by man, really there's something else going on too. Something deeper, bigger, more terrible, more sinister, more destructive than meets the eye. I don't mean that flesh and blood can't hurt or hinder the cause of Christ. I mean that the prince of the power of the air is more dangerous than any of his subjects, and he must be overcome in every instance of conflict or the battle is lost. End quote. Believers, would you consider Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2? And you, and you he hath made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world. Listen to this. When you followed the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of dis- disobedience. So what's the nature of this war? It's not a war that's fought with guns or ammo. It's not a war like a modern uh, video game that makes you feel invincible. This is a nefarious war. It's a spiritual war against the devil, against evil uh, rulers and demons and authorities and cosmic powers and spiritual forces. It's an unseen, nefarious war that's raging against us, that wants to win the rights and kill our souls. It wants to render us useless for the cause of Christ so that we we will not behold and joy and pursue Jesus. So that way, there will be people, the four and the one, right? The one and the four, the people we will not, so that we will not tell others about Christ. There's a war going on behind the scenes. Now, what does that look like in real life? How do these unseen spiritual evil rulers wage war? I think we need to be aware of the nature of it. Otherwise, we're not going to know how to fight. We're not going to see it. What does it look like in real life? First, we go to the book of Job. Let's read about the exchange between God and the devil, starting in Job chapter 1, verse 7. The Bible says, the Lord, came to, the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come, Satan? And he answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and walking up and walking down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my so- servant Job? Let me stop right there. Do you understand why Jesus, God asks Job what he asks Job, or says to Job what he says to Job? That right there, have you considered my servant Job, explains what Satan was doing when it says he was going to and fro on the earth, walking up and down it. What is he saying? He's admitting, the evil one is admitting that he is fighting against God, that he is an enemy of God, that he is trying to kill truth. That's what it means when he walks up to and fro. That's what it means when 1 Peter 5 says that he is walking around like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. My friends, there is a war going on for your soul. And he goes on here in verse number 8, and he says, The Lord said 
to, to Satan, have you considered my ser- uh, servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And then Satan answered the Lord and says, does Job fear you for no reason? I mean, have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed, you've blessed him with the work of his hands. And his possessions have increased in the land. But, God, if you just stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, he'll curse you to your face. (laughs) You bless him, of course he likes you. And the Lord looked at him, at Satan, and said, Behold, you know what? All that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. And so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord And then there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job. And the messenger said to Job, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them. And then all of a sudden the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while that man was yet speaking, there came another one and said, A fire, a fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed all of the people, and I have alone escaped to tell you. And yet while he was speaking, there was another man that came to him and said, the Chaldeans came also and formed three groups and made a raid around on the camels, and they took them. And they struck down the servants that were watching the camels with the edge of the sword, and only I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was speaking, a fourth guy came, and he said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in the house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And when we look at that passage today, that sobering p- passage, sometimes we gloss over some of those things. We look at the whole, we say, oh, that's horrible, and it is. But you see here what? means Satan used as a, against, as a war against the soul of Job? He used nature. The nature of war is that sometimes the evil one uses natural disasters. Certainly not every natural disaster can be considered coming from Satan. There are, of course, other reasons, but nonetheless, he did in this text use this for his evil purpose. I bet he was hoping that because of these natural disasters and the death and the attack upon his family that he would have cursed God. Modern day times, just think about tsunamis or hurricanes or other natural disasters. And ultimately what that does for some people is it leads them to question and even hate God. The evil one's pretty tricky. In that same story, in Job chapter 2, God allows Satan, secondly, to inflict physical sickness upon Job. And Satan came back and he answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But if you stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, then he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord said, behold... He is in your hand. You just can't kill him. 
So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck, Satan struck Job with loathsome sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Again, not all poor poor health comes directly from attack of Satan or the demons, but it does happen. Certainly, when our health is attacked, just like Satan's hope was for Job, wouldn't we be tempted to curse God? There's some of you that are sitting here, they're going to face some times when your physical sickness is going, or physical sickness is going to, when your health is attacked, attacked. You see, the evil one even uses physical means like this to war against us. Friends, we're not in peacetime. We're not in peacetime. Third, and I include this one only to drive home the point that there are many powerful schemes of the devil. Sometimes demons have power over animals. Did you know that? Mark 15, Mark chapter 5 records that. They came together to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gazarenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. This man lived among the tombs, and no one could bind this man anymore, not even with chains, because he had been often bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Jesus was, had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And the man replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding, feeding there nearby on the hillside. And Legion begged him, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. And so he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down into the steep bank, into the sea, and drowned in the sea. And while both in the case of Job and this case here, God's sovereignty obviously is in play. God is sovereign over all. There are times from both of these passages where cosmic evil powers show themselves in real, extraordinary ways. So much so that 2,000 pigs drowned. My point is simply to show you that we're fighting a battle that we don't even realize. And yet, we think we're in peacetime. Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this. Another way in which the devil comes and causes havoc is by attacking us with, fourth, evil thoughts. The fact that you're tempted by evil thoughts must not lead you to the conclusion that you're not a Christian. This is what the devil would have you believe, of course. It's his work. I again quote the phrase, the fiery darts of the wicked one. Have we not all experienced these fiery darts? Even when you may be reading your Bible, evil and blasphemous thoughts come to you. You're not thinking about such things, and you, do not want to, and you don't even want to think about them. Where 
have they come from? What is their origin? End quote. His point in the commentary that he writes here on Ephesians chapter 6, he's not to say that we're not responsible for our actions or that our sin nature doesn't induce and desire and welcome evil. It does. Nonetheless, there is an evil one who fires those darts willingly towards us, and they will wreak havoc upon us. It's a spiritual warfare that's going on in our minds. There are evil thoughts that come upon us. Fifth, on the front lines of this war that we fight, evil spiritual forces utilize confusion and doubt. Number five, confusion and doubt. May I remind you of what Satan said in the Garden of Eden? Now the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, come on, Eve. Did God actually say not to eat of this? He was trying to confuse her, trying to get her to doubt. I mean, did God really say don't eat of any tree? Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 4, and he says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Do you know what? The evil one is really good at blinding the minds of unbelievers so that they don't come to faith. How does he do that? He can causes confusion and doubt. He gets them to see and buy into lies. And sometimes the lies look really good. Take the prosperity gospel that we fight in our culture today. Oh, God loves you. You can live your best life now. Just love Jesus. Give the church a thousand bucks and you'll have a happy life and be blessed. My friends, that is a lie from the pit of hell. Matter of fact, Pastor Lloyd Jones, and I'll, I'll quote him a little bit later again, he calls that quack theology. The evil one utilizes confusion and doubt. Paul warns young Pastor Timothy about the confusion evil spirit can cause from this false teaching. He says, now the Spirit express, expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. How? By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. Listen, Paul warns Timothy here, and he says, there are false teachers everywhere. You are in war. Church, here's the point that I want us to understand this morning. There is evil out there, and it's an evil that some, we know about the indwelling, the evil that we face. We know about the war against our flesh. We know about Romans 7. We've talked about that. But there's also an evil that we cannot touch. It's evil spirits and demons, and the evil one, one himself that we can't see, but they are busy waging a war against you. It's not a joke, so wake up. We're not in peacetime. You know, it's a very sobering thing for the general to get up and to rally the troops together. And this morning, as we are awakened to the battle once again, where General Paul gets up 
and he calls us, he commands us to be strong, where he commands us to put on, and he commands us to stand. He does so, fourth of all, this morning. We cannot remember that, that part of that command, number four, is to be strong. Be strong. Now, this command to be strong, the first thing that we looked at, the command to be strong is a coin, really, with two sides. On the one side, it's a personal command to believers. In other words, we have a responsibility to fight, to be strong. This is much like the command that, that God had given Joshua after the death of Moses in Joshua chapter 1. Joshua 1 reads, And after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, He said, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I have promised to Moses. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your, your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you, Joshua. I will not leave you or forsake you. So therefore, verse 6, be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers. Verse 7, only be strong and very courageous. Courageous. Verse 9, have I not commanded you to be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Brothers and sisters, we can be strong because Jesus, because God is always with us. He doesn't leave us or forsake us. He's with us in the battle, but we have to fight. He tells them, you've got to be strong and courageous. Friends, are you strong and courageous? There's no doubt from this text. There's no doubt from the text in Joshua that we are personally called to be strong in a battle. Ephesians 6 says that we are to be strong. It's a command. We are to put on the whole armor. We are to stand. We've got to put like, since we're in a war, we have to put like warlike effort. Strive, endeavor. I mention this because there's a slogan that means well, but it's filled with half-truth. And therefore, it's really damaging to the gospel. And it's really damaging to believers. Pastor Lloyd-Jones, I said I would quote him again, he, he accurately says this. He says, it's a warfare that you and I have to wage. Let us be clear on this. There is a teaching that, which says, Christian people, you have, been give, you have been making a great mistake. You have been trying to fight this battle, but you must stop doing so. It says, this teaching says that there is only one thing to do. Hand it over to the Lord and all will be well. Just hand it over to the Lord and he will fight for you. But friends, you cannot fit that into the teaching we have here in Ephesians 6. You can't do it. He says, I do not find the apostle telling me to hand it over to the Lord and he'll just fight my battles for me while I just sit back. It's not here. I have to fight. Church, we have to fight. Another way in which this teaching is put is sometimes like this. Let go and let God. 
let go, they say. You've been holding on to it. You've been trying to, so just let go and let God. It's all right. You're going to get the victory. It's quite simple. No effort is required. But surely what we read here in Ephesians 6 is the exact opposite of such teaching. It is you and I who have to do the fighting, end quote. Friends, he's exactly right. We have to do the fighting. We have to be strong on one side. But the other side of the coin is it says in the text there that we're to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. I mentioned this just a second ago in that passage of Joshua, but the Lord is the source. Secondly, the Lord is the source of our strength. We have a responsibility. We have to be strong, but Jesus is always with. He's the source of it. It says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. This teaches us that our strength isn't something that we conjure up ourselves. It's not something we, weigh, we raise ourselves, or we, it's like we just use our willpower to continue on in battle. Rather, the strength to continue on, the strength to be strong, the strength to put on the armor, the strength to stand comes from the Lord. But you say, how does this work? How, how do we put that? How does the Lord give us the strength? I mean, where, how does this all work? I think that's a great question that we have to answer. Otherwise, we'll never be able to fight the war. The Ephesian Christians, no doubt, had the same question, and Paul addressed it earlier in the letter. And I would, as Homer, go home and read. Read the rest, the, the first part, uh, first five chapters of Ephesians. Because if you read earlier in that part of the letter, this is what he taught the believers in Ephesus and what he teaches us today. He says that we're adopted as children into God's family through Jesus. And that adoption brought upon us or lavished upon every one of us untold riches of his grace. That is, through the kindness of Jesus, Paul says that we have this amazing inheritance. We have new hearts. Hearts that are not hard any longer. We have eyes we have eyes, the eyes of our hearts aren't dark anymore. We can now see and recognize and believe truth. That's all part of inheritance. We no longer have darkened minds. Why? Because we have the treasure of the indwelling Holy Spirit inside of us. We're no longer alienated from God. We're no longer his enemy. We're no longer the recipients of his wrath. Why? Because we are reconciled to him and have peace with him because we are in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 5 of Ephesians says, God made us alive together with Christ. Friends, don't you see the riches and what it means to be in Christ? Chapters 1 through 5. That we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And so how does this work? How does the strength come from the Lord? Because it's there. He's given it to you. He's gifted it to you. Every believer has it. You don't have to, you're not bound to obey sin. Why? You have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Do you realize that the Trinity, part of that Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, resides inside of you? That's amazing. Don't you realize that your heart is new? That your eyes can see and that your mind can understand and that God has given us armor. 
And then what Paul does here is he goes on after these verses and he says, look, you have a belt and a shield and a sword and you have feet that are prepared a certain way. You have all of this stuff. I've given it to you. Friends, God's given us this armor, which we're going to go through, and that's the subject of the next weeks of study. But for us to ever make good use of the armor, to ever understand why we put it on. Some of you are sitting here and you're like, what in the world does the belt have to do? Why does he call it the belt of this or the sword of the spirit or feet shod with this? Or why does he say those things? Listen, church, we, we are called personally to be strong. And we can be strong because we're in the, we are in the Lord. I told you, the teaching, this is what Lloyd-Jones says. He says, the teaching which gives the impression that the pathway to glory is all easy and simple and smooth is not Christianity. It is the hallmark of a quack remedy. It's a war. On many battlefronts. And Paul shows us here in Ephesians chapter 6 something that we probably don't think about enough is that there's a war for our soul that we can't even see. And so let me, because we're in Christ, let me share with you this armor of God, which will be the subject of the weeks to come. Brothers and sisters, this morning we need to wake up and listen to the general. We, need, we must have, and we can, we must and we can because of Jesus. Because our spiritual lives hang in the balance. There's a war for your souls. And I want us to be able to be able to fight that fight. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this text this morning. We ask for your continued help. We do live in a war. And right now, collectively, we as a church say and ask for your forgiveness because we have been living like it is peacetime. There has been a war for our souls in our environments, in the culture, in media, with our flesh. And as we looked at today, a war for our souls that is unseen but real. And so I pray that you would help us to be sober about this war that we fight. And may the next weeks help us and prepare us to fight that battle. To be alert and to be awake, to be vigilant, to be watchful, because there is someone who wants to kill us spiritually. So help us, we ask. Prepare our hearts. Use this study, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we're dismissed today,